Hello, everybody. It's good to see you guys again. I missed you after uh, Super Bowl. Because we live here in the South, and we canceled church on Super Bowl night. Uh, yeah, so um, just as a kind of a reminder, we are going through the story that Mark is telling, the Gospel of Mark. Uh, and Mark has been telling the story to end all stories, how God is going to renew, rescue, redeem a broken hurting, sinful creation. And he's chosen to do that through one man, Jesus, the anointed king, his only son. And in the beginning of the book, he showed a story after story showing exactly how Jesus is bringing the kingdom of God to earth. He's healing those who are sick. He's casting out demons. He's cleansing the unclean. He's forgiving sinners. This is God's renewing, restoring will, breaking in to the earth as we know it. And then finally, the disciples get to the point where they recognize, okay, this guy is God's anointed king. They confess that. And then Jesus says, finally, okay, now this is your personal training time. And so what he does in the middle of the book that we're in right now is he begins to teach them what it means for him to be king. And it doesn't fit their categories because for him to be God's king, he's actually going to suffer. He's going to be rejected. He's going to be killed. And then he says, what that means for you as those who follow me is you're going to walk a similar path. And then over and over, what he has to do is tweak their understandings and values of how life should work. Because they live in the kingdoms of this world, and they're used to how things work here. And Jesus is saying, if you're going to be citizens in God's kingdom, it's got to be, it's got to be pretty different. And we've got to flip some of your ideas. We've got to flip some of your values. And so the, in the passage tonight, we're going to see that Jesus is actually going to flip both the disciples and our view of greatness. Whenever we think of greatness, honestly, whenever the disciples thought of greatness, we think about it in terms of self-exaltation, pleasing ourselves, putting ourselves in top rank. And Jesus has a different definition. But first, I just want to think about how we think about greatness I think it's fitting uh, to bring this up. Um, so the Pats won the Super Bowl, um, which was weird because at our Super Bowl party, we lost the feed at like the third quarter. And so it was like 6 to 28. And then I was just like, okay, happy Super Bowl 51. That was a flop. And I found out it was like this crazy reversal. The Pats won, and Tom Brady got his fourth Super Bowl ring. And back in 2009, he was doing a, uh, an interview with 60 Minutes, and he had three Super Bowl rings at this point. He was being paid $60 million a year for a 10-year contract with the Patriots. And he had, like, the supermodel wife. I mean, he is the definition of American star, right? The definition of worldly greatness. And there's this neat little clip. Well, neat in the, in the sense that it gives us insight. Uh, it's a little sad, honestly. Uh, there's a clip in a long interview where they're talking about everything that Tom Brady has. And he's talking about everything he has. And he said, you know, I don't know why I keep thinking this, but I have three Super Bowl rings, and I keep on thinking there's got to be something more. Like, I think, God, there has to be more than this. And the interviewer asks him, he says, what's the answer? He said, I wish I knew. Our definition of greatness from a worldly perspective will lead to emptiness. Tom Brady is just one of many examples throughout human history of pursuing something that the world can offer to the utmost, 
and feeling unsatisfied. And so for you and for me, we play this out just on a daily basis. We don't have $60 million, right? We're probably not going to be married to a supermodel. We're not going to be the definition of start. Well, maybe, maybe Joe is, but um, it's just not going to be our story. But we do pursue greatness in our own lives according to self-exaltation, satisfying ourselves. Think about the way that you pursue your relationships, the way that you view your family, your friends, the boyfriend or girlfriend that you have. Functionally, at a default level, you, pers- you interact with people on this basis. If they build me up, if they encourage me, if they make me feel good, then things are great. But if they don't, then there's a problem. And if that goes on for a long time, I begin to pull away, I begin to disassociate, and I kind of cut my ties and go on to greener pastures. We pursue our relationships often, seeking them to build us up, make us feel good, put us on the top rung. I do this too. I find that whenever I'm frustrated with, with friends, it's often because they're not meeting my needs, my desires. I find that whenever I'm frustrated with my family, it's for the same reason. And then honestly, the farthest thought from my mind in those moments where I'm frustrated is, how can I reach out and care? How can I reach out and be a blessing? How can I reach out and encourage and affirm? I accept a worldly view of greatness for myself, and I know that you do too. This plays out with vocation, whether it's school or work. Or maybe one day some of you will be stay-at-home moms and you will view your vocation, your daily role, as a way to build yourself up, to make yourself satisfied enough. And it goes on and on. Like Many of us approach the church in this way. The church is here to meet my needs and to build me up and give me what I need. And far, far from our minds is any view of what do I give? What do I bring to the table? Jesus speaks in a way to challenge this at its core. Greatness is not about self-exaltation. Greatness in God's eyes is not about receiving and being built up by others. Greatness is about self-sacrificial service. This is what we're going to see in Mark chapter 10 tonight. So go ahead and open up your Bibles. We're going to be in verses 32 through 52. So we're going to finish up this middle section of Mark. And there is so much here. If I was in teaching mode, we would be here for like three hours. But I will keep it short. And we're going to focus on one idea. We're going to focus on how greatness is found not in self-service, but it's found in self-sacrificial service that benefits others. So it's not in serving yourself. It's not in seeking your own benefit. It's not at looking around and saying, hey, what do you have to offer me? It's actually looking at yourself and saying, What can I give? How can I serve? How can I lay myself down? This is greatness in God's eyes. So we're going to look at this passage as three chunks. And as we go, uh, we're going to see how this kind of loops back to the main idea. In this first chunk, 32 through 34, we're going to see that as God's anointed king, Jesus is headed towards self-sacrifice in Jerusalem. Okay, so go ahead and pick it up. Verse 32. And they, the disciples, were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. 
And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. Taking the twelve again, Jesus began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and then deliver him over to the Gentiles, who will then mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise. As God's anointed king, Jesus is actually headed straight towards self-sacrifice in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the capital of Israel, and this is the place where all of Jesus' enemies hold the most power. It's this weird irony in the book of Mark that Jesus' enemies are actually the religious elite, like the church people of his day. Those are the people who are most opposed to him and want to kill him. And they hold power in Jerusalem. That's their center of authority, and he is headed on the road there. And so all the disciples who are with him are thinking, we haven't prepared for this. Where's the army? Uh, They don't like you there, and they have the power. You don't have that. What are you doing? And this brooding, ominous feel is what everybody feels as they're walking on the road. That's why they're afraid. They're amazed at him. So Jesus senses that, and he says, okay, let's have another conversation. And for the third time in the book of Mark, he says, I want you to know what's going to happen Before it happens, I am headed to Jerusalem, and I am headed towards self-sacrifice. I will be rejected by my people. I will be handed over to pagans, and they will give me a shameful death. That is what's going to happen. Take a look again at verse 33. The Son of Man will be delivered, and these things will happen. That's a title that comes from the Old Testament. We've talked briefly about it before. It's a title that comes from the Old Testament in a book called Daniel in chapter 7 where there's a picture of God's eternal king reigning over God's kingdom forever. And he crushes all worldly authorities and all people (coughs) worship and serve him. And so Jesus takes this title and he says, I'm the son of man. And what that means to be God's eternal king is I'm actually going to be rejected by my own people. I'm going to be handed over to Gentile rulers. I'm going to be beaten, mocked, spit upon, and killed in a shameful way. Again, this is just breaking up their categories. How could God's eternal king take that path? But Jesus, over and over, has been wedding these two things together. Because he is God's king, he walks this path. It is through the shameful death of Jesus Christ that the kingdom of God comes in to save and rescue creation. It is through the shameful, despicable death of Jesus that the kingdom of God comes in to rescue, to redeem, to renew all things. And this is the way that God has chosen to work things out. This is what it means for Jesus to be God's king. And so the disciples... Their definition of what king means needs to be transformed. Jesus has been been trying to do that over and over, and they're still having a hard time. And we're going to see that in the next section. In verses 35 through 45, the main thing that we're going to see is that as the king, Jesus is the utmost example of self-sacrificial service. And the disciples are struggling to get that. Take a look at verse 35. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said, 
Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you, which is just a hilarious question. <laughs> like, can you, can you imagine the arrogance and the gall? Like, hey, we don't want to tell you yet what we want. We want you to agree beforehand that whatever we ask of you, you're going to give us. And then Jesus has this really gracious response. Look at me. He says, verse 36, so what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Basically, whenever you come into your kingdom, whenever you conquer all powers, when you are sitting in glory, ruling, we want to have <clears throat> the most favored spots. We want to be right next to you as your right and left hand man. Give us that because we deserve it, basically. Verse 38, Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, okay, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. So here we have a specific example of James and John working with still a worldly definition of greatness. Jesus talks about what it means for me to be king is I'm going to go, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to be rejected, killed, and I'm going to raise again. And I just imagine them kind of standing there, staring with their mouth half open, but not really listening. You know, whenever you're talking to somebody and you can tell their mind's like totally in a different place, and then it becomes clear because they say something that doesn't relate to anything you just said. You know that? I think that's exactly what happens here. Because right after Jesus talks about the suffering and the rejection he's going to go through, they're like, by the way, we got a favor we think we deserve from you. Give us glory and power. And Jesus says, you just don't get it. <laughs> not only do you not get the greatness that God is looking for, but power, positions of authority in God's kingdom, is actually bound up with suffering and sacrifice. That's why he brings up the imagery of the cup in baptism. In the Old Testament, the cup is this image of God's wrath that's poured out upon wicked sinners. It's suffering that's endured at the hand of God because people have rebelled against him and rejected him and gone their own ways. Baptism is the symbol for being overwhelmed by calamity. And so he's saying, look, the path that I'm walking, I've got to drink that cup. And I've got to undergo that baptism. This is part of what it means to be great in God's kingdom, is to undergo suffering and difficulty. Are you willing to receive that? And they're like, not giving it a second stop. They're like, yeah, let's just get to the good part. Like, we want the power. We want the authority. And Jesus says, that's not even the point. I can't even give that to you. That's the fathers to give to who he's prepared it for. James and John are still working with the definition of greatness that is from the world. Self-exaltation. What am I going to get? How am I going to be favored? How's this going to work out well for me? And Jesus says, guys, we've got to flip this. And then it happens in this next little chunk, verse 41, pick it up again. When the ten heard it, that James and John had been talking to Jesus, they began to be indignant ticked off at James and John. Not because they were wrong in their thinking, but probably because they jumped on the opportunity before they did, right? 
42. And Jesus called them all to him and said to them, Look, you know those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them for their own good, for their own exaltation. But it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus takes this opportunity to do a little bit of a teaching moment. He takes all 12, and he redefines greatness. It's not about having power and authority to lord over others. It's not about exalting yourself over others. It's actually about becoming a servant and submitting yourself to others for their good. And then he furthers it and he says, become a slave of all. In the ancient world, slavery was a very, very common thing. It's not what we think of as Americans. It wasn't based on race or ethnicity. It was a social class thing. The majority of people in the ancient world at that time were actually enslaved, and they served the will of their masters. Every day they woke up and they presented themselves before their masters, and they said, what would you have me do today? And Jesus is saying, if you want to be first in God's eyes, if you want to be first in the kingdom of God, treat your life like that towards the others around you. This is not about what you get. It's about what you have to give to others. And then he talks about his own life, the purpose for which he came. Verse 45, look at that again. For even the Son of Man came not to to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus' purpose in coming was to care for the people who needed it. We see this in the beginning of the book of Mark. This is what we've seen over and over. He was feeding the hungry. He was cleansing the unclean, casting out demons from those possessed, healing, forgiving sinners. And then the apex of his life is to actually lay his life down, to give himself as a ransom for many. That language is talking about purchasing slaves for freedom. That word ransom is what that refers to and in Jesus mind what he's thinking of is the world as it exists now humans are naturally born in slavery and in servitude to sin to sin and to Satan and so whenever he was casting out demons before earlier in the gospel he said the strong man is here and he's actually plundering the house of the evil one that's me I am freeing slaves in Satan's dominion and he points forward to his death and he says, this what this is all about. I came to give my life to purchase slaves in Satan's dominion out so they might be citizens of the kingdom of God and freed there to serve him and to serve others. Jesus' death is the price paid to free sinners and to give them life. And it is in his cross, it is in his crucifixion, it is in his shameful death that looks like defeat, that he's actually the victorious king freeing a people to serve God and to have life. These aren't separate, distinct things. These are woven together. What looks like defeat, what will look like shameful defeat to the disciples is actually Jesus' victory. 
and it redefines the definition of grace or greatness. Okay, Jesus is the utmost example of self-sacrificial service. And then we're going to jump down to 46 through 52. And here we have just a great example where a blind man named Bartimaeus perceives Jesus more clearly than the disciples and then eagerly follows him on his path. Verse 46. And they came to Jericho, which is a city about 15 miles from Jerusalem. It's about to be on the horizon. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples in a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. He's an unimportant guy. He's poor. What is he doing interrupting the king? But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. So Jesus stopped and said, call him. He's a king who's not too important to talk to the lowly. And they called the blind man and saying to him, take heart, get up, he's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well, has saved you. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. This blind man named Bartimaeus sees something that the disciples had struggled to see for a large portion of the book of Mark. And he shows it when he says, calls Jesus the son of David. The son of David is a title that comes from the Old Testament. David was one of the greatest kings in the Old Testament, if not the greatest king. And the prophets had said, there's coming a day when one who is descended from David will come and reign and rule and restore everything for Israel and renew the earth and so the people of Israel have been waiting for this son of David and here's this blind beggar who hears that Jesus of Nazareth is in town and he knows that's him that's the king that God has promised that's the one who's going to renew all things and if he can do that then he can renew my sight and he steps up and he says well what would you have me do and the man doesn't he doesn't hesitate a moment Healing blind people, in, in the view of the ancients, was one of the hardest things to do. This sounds weird to us, but there were actual people who would go around and heal people, cast out demons, things like that that we're not used to. But even those who did those things said that healing blindness was harder to do than raising the dead. So this man has faith. <laughs> Jesus, what I want you to do is give me my sight back. And immediately he's healed. What we have here is, is a physical, tangible example of what the disciples need. They need God to grant them spiritual eyes to see who Jesus is, what that means for Jesus, and what that means for them. They're struggling to see that, but in due time, God will grant that. Bartimaeus is an example of that. And then his example is something that Mark and God himself is calling us to immediately. Look at verse 52, immediately he recovered his sight and followed Jesus on the way, headed towards Jerusalem. The king is headed towards self-sacrifice. The king is headed towards rejection and suffering. And Bartimaeus follows him. Just like Bartimaeus, we are called to eagerly follow the king 
on his path of self-sacrifice and service without hesitation. And so the thing that I just want to spend some time unpacking and explaining is pursuing greatness through and in self-sacrificial service. This is what God has called us to. This is the definition of greatness. It's not, hey, go low for the first part and then you get exalted. It's in going low, that's where greatness is. In being a servant, in giving of yourself, in laying your life down, that's where greatness is. And just like the disciples, that does not compete for us. And so we just need to take some time to unpack and think through what does that look like in daily life? And so I just want to talk about three different areas of life, relationships, vocation, and then the church. And tonight, really what I'm doing is I'm speaking to those who have professed faith in Jesus and are saying, I want to follow him. I want to talk to you guys tonight in particular to talk about what it looks like to pursue greatness in self-sacrificial service. You see, many of us, we approach our relationships in a fundamentally self-serving way, like I was talking about before. And we, we tend to, we don't think about it consciously this way, but we have this idea at the pit of our heart. It's my satisfaction is what's mo most important here. What do I get out of this? If this benefits me, then great. If not, then I'm out. Do others encourage and affirm me? Do my, does my family do that? Does my friends do that? Does my boyfriend or girlfriend do that? And if not, I begin to grow cold. If not, I begin to grow distant, and then eventually I'll cut, cut off ties and kind of count my losses, head a different direction. We tend to pursue relationships in a way that just is mostly focused on our own satisfaction. If it's good, then great, and if it's not, then I'm out. And to follow the example of Jesus is to not take a self-serving approach, it's to take a self-sacrificial approach. Instead of saying, what is good for me, the good of those around me should be the focus. I wonder how many of us have thought, as we're going to spend time with our fr families, our friends, our boyfriend or our girlfriend, to think about, genuinely, what can I do to bless this person or these people? And what if that became the mindset and the posture that we lived every day from? How can I be an encouragement to my mom, to my dad? How can I build up my sister or my brother? How can I treat my boyfriend or girlfriend not in a way that satisfies me, that gives me pleasure, but how can I treat them in a way that is good for them, fosters flourishing and health and wholeness for them? That's not just a once and done thing. That's an overall lifestyle pathway that Jesus is calling us to. We're not to be, approach others from a self-serving perspective, looking for satisfaction, being built up by others. We're to approach others asking, what good can I do for those around me? What good can I do for my family, my friends, romantic relationships? Think about your vocation. <coughs> right now, you guys are in school, and for some of you, getting good grades and getting through here in a short amount of time, that is the goal of your life. And what I want to say is that's a good goal to have, work hard, and be diligent. And I want to say that again because I think there are others of you who 
maybe that's not the goal. Uh, you, you set a good example. Part of your testimony as a Christian is being diligent and working hard. Okay, so I, I do want you to do your best in what you're doing, whether it's school or your job, or maybe some of you sometime it's going to be raising children. I want you to be excellent in that. But whenever that turns into glorifying yourself, receiving approval from others, whenever that turns into striving only for a good job that pays a whole lot, that grants you favor with other people, that gives you stability in your life like we've talked about before, whenever that's the main thing that's driving you, and you're going to your vocation to get that, that is a self-serving way to approach life, and you will find emptiness in that. Like, Tom Brady says it himself. Take his word for it and go a different direction. Jesus is calling you not to approach your vocation, school, work, whatever, in a self-serving way. He's calling you to approach it in a self-sacrificial way. So as you work hard in school, as you work hard in your jobs, whether it's part-time right now or full-time on down the road or right now, the question should be, as I do my best here, what role can I play to honor God and bless the people around me? What role can I play to set a good example of what a follower of Jesus looks like? And how do I tangibly display that by speaking words of encouragement and affirmation, speaking truth, lifting up the weary, reaching out and actually caring for the people around me in practical, <coughs> tangible ways? I mean, just think about the roommates that you have. If you don't have great relationships with them, if they don't know the Lord, what are the ways that you can tangibly reach out to them and show, not only do you matter as a person, but you matter to me, and I'm willing to take steps to show that. That is not regular for a roommate to do. Many of you know that, and you can testify to that, right? That is a way that you can represent your Lord to those who don't know him. And then finally, the church. Many of us approach the church with a self-serving mindset. We come in the doors, and just not consciously or maliciously, this is the way that we function. We're looking for a good emotional time in worship. We're looking for some sort of spiritual feeding from preaching or teaching, and then that's it. And then we head out, and that's church for the week, and then we repeat, repeat, repeat week after week. The question is, what am I getting how is this benefiting me? What does this have to offer me? And while I want to say worship is a beautiful time to be refreshed, that's good and right. And preaching sermons is valuable. I think that because I do it every week. But I believe it because I've received it also. You know, I think it's a good thing. But that is not the end of what being a part of the church is all about. If your role, your life in the church terminates on you, that's not Christian life. If your role in your life in the church terminates on you, that is not genuine Christian life. Jesus flips our understanding of what greatness is. It's not about self-exaltation. It's not about receiving. It's about giving. And so, wherever you go to churches on Sunday morning, right, some of you go to Grace, some of you go elsewhere, I want you to think through, how can I give my time 
my energy, my gifts, finances, if you have them, if you're being paid by your parents, you know, that's a different deal. There will come a day whenever you work a job and you have your own money. But this is the categories that we think through. How can I give of these things to be a contributing member of the family? The church is not just a building. The church is not just a service for you. The church is a people of God, the family of God that you have been welcomed into by grace. And not only are you welcomed in and fed and encouraged, but then God says, use your gifts. You have so much to offer the people around you. And you might think, I really don't. <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing. And I'll tell you, there's, there's simple ways pretty much at any church that you can serve. There are always little ones, right, from like infancy on up through high school. And they would die just to have college students who are cool spend some time with them. And you can be trained in that. You can be helped along in that. That's just one simple way that you can step in and begin to serve and give of your time, your energy, your gifts for the good of the body of the family of God. The question is not how am I served, it's how am I going to be a servant. And I'll tell you what, in the midst of that, as you begin to have that as your mindset and live that out, you will find that God blesses you, God fills you up, God encourages you as you pour yourself out. Jesus said it earlier in the Gospel of Mark, you gain your life by losing it. You gain by losing. This is part of the weird topsy-turvy values of the kingdom of God. It's not about serving yourself. It's about serving others, making yourself lowly, giving yourselves for the good of others. We are called to serve because we have been served first. God's anointed king came in, and on the scene, this is what he did. He healed the sick. He cleansed the unclean. He welcomed the outcasts. He exercised the spiritually afflicted. He forgave sinners. His life was one of service, one of giving of himself for the good of others. And at the climax of that life on earth, he gave his life itself. And at the hands of of Roman rulers, he was shamefully killed, naked, alone, on a cross. And he did that for you, and he did that for me, that we might have the favor of God, that we might have the forgiveness of God, that we might have love from the Father. And he gave these as gifts to us. You don't have to live a life worrying about serving yourself. That's been taken care of. The Son of God himself has served you. The King of glory has served you. Your good is taken care of. He knows you and he loves you. Let go of trying to serve yourself and give of yourself for the good of others. This is what it means to be great in God's eyes. This is what it means to be great in the kingdom of God. Let's pray. <coughs> Father, we If we're honest, we will wake up tomorrow and think of life in the same way that we always have. We will wake up and we will be consumed with our own anxieties, our own desires. We will go to our classes. We will go to our jobs. And we will feel the hunger and the ache to be fulfilled by the things around us. 
I pray in Jesus' name and by the power of the Spirit of God that you would protect the hearts in this room from walking a path pursuing satisfaction and finding emptiness. And I pray, Lord, that you would train us to think in a way that is so radical and so different that we would view our lives as something to be given as a gift for the good of those around us and for your glory. Lord, would you please speak to your people as they read your word, as they pray, as they interact with others. I pray you would open their eyes to the opportunities that are all over to be a blessing. And I pray that you would encourage them, showing them that you have empowered them and equipped them by your spirit to be faithful. We love you, Lord. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.